This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 15th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Summer, just a week away, officially anyway, but we've had no need to wait for its official arrival in Hotlanta, where 90-plus degree temps have already been making their presence felt. I hope it's a little more comfortable wherever you may be. And I hope, too, that you enjoyed my conversation last week with Franworth President and COO Dave Kyle. We're actually going to have Dave back for a second round in the weeks ahead to talk about a completely different side of Franworth called Franchise for Good. It's the nonprofit side of their business and a completely different discussion than the one that we had last week. We just couldn't make enough time to do both justice in a single interview, so watch for Dave's return in the weeks ahead. Also in the weeks ahead, a best friend forever, Hand in Stone CEO John Tezza will be making his way around. But let's not get too far ahead of our skis. Today's guest is Kevin Basner, CEO of one of America's historic, if not iconic, and legendary restaurant franchise brands. Are you thinking McDonald's, Burger King, or maybe KFC? Nope. All three of those upstarts go no further back than the mid-50s. You'd have to travel back to before sliced bread was created in 1928 to even get close to the birth of the brand that I'm talking about. My guest today is the CEO of America's first restaurant franchise ever, A&W Restaurants. I think, to be statistically accurate, Nathan's in Coney Island, my hometown, began doing business three years earlier than A&W, but A&W beat them hands down in terms of franchising. On that fun fact, why don't we take a quick break here, and when I return, I'll be joined by A&W Restaurant's CEO, Kevin Basner. Don't go away. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, franchisors of restaurants, bars, grills, and taverns, and multi-unit franchisees, listen up. This message is for you. Atmosphere TV wants to help you cut costs on overpriced cable TV for your business and either replace it completely or partially if sports programming is essential at your locations. What Atmosphere TV provides are 100% free programming options with more than 50 channels of highly engaging and entertaining programming that is audio optional and guaranteed to please your customers and even increase their average ticket per visit. So here's how it works. Atmosphere hooks you up with an Apple TV HD receiver loaded with more than 50 channels of fully licensed, no cost to you, fun and lifestyle programming. These channels include Chive and Red Bull TV, bloopers, superhuman feats, and an array of viewing options that don't require sound to be enjoyed. And this offer is not just limited to restaurants or bars. No, any business with a TV screen in its waiting room can benefit from Atmosphere's free programming offer as well. So what are you waiting for? Cut the cord on overpriced cable and get Atmosphere TV with its 100% free, engaging, and entertaining programming options. Keep your guests happy while they wait to see you. In 
instead of watching the clock and their wait times, chiropractors, doctors, dentists, auto repair shops, anyone with TVs in your waiting rooms, jump onto this amazing offer today. And if you text the word FRANCHISE to 474747, Atmosphere will waive the $100 setup fee for the Apple TV HD receiver that they'll ship to you as well at no cost. Atmosphere TV, changing the way businesses view television. Find them online at atmosphere.tv and remember, text FRANCHISE to 474747 for the no-charge Apple receiver. Cut the cord and get rid of cable today with Atmosphere TV. Another fun fact or two about A&W before I introduce you to Kevin. A&W's name actually came from the first letter of each of the founders' last names, Roy Allen and Frank Wright. And A&W was also home to the first drive through restaurant in America and actually gave birth as well to the bacon cheeseburger. One last trivia tidbit before I turn my attention to Kevin. Back in the late 1920s, the Marriott's, J.W. and Alice, actually ran an A&W restaurant stand in Washington, D.C. before they pivoted years later to developing hotels instead of just restaurants. So, here now to share more about this iconic brand and his own storied career, Kevin Basner. Kevin Basner, welcome to Franchise Today. Well, good morning. It's nice to be here this morning and great talking with you. Well, I'm looking forward to talking as well. While I don't have an A&W anywhere in proximity to my home in the Atlanta area, I know that brand like I've known McDonald's or any other brand that's as iconic a name as A&W. And so it's a privilege today to have a conversation with you as its leader and to learn more about both the brand itself and, of course, your career guiding it as CEO. So, Kevin, what do you say we start the way I do every week? Why don't I ask you to take us back to the moment in time that franchising came knocking on your door and introduced itself to you and your career began in this world we love so much? Well, Stan, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And uh, my uh, meeting with uh, franchising is uh, probably a little bit different than uh, most people that you speak to, but I leave that to your judgment. And I first met franchising and franchising first met me in 1988. Now that's 30 over 30 years ago, 34 years ago, and I've been in the industry for, well, let's say a little bit more than 50. So not quite halfway into my career, I met franchising, and I met it, and I'd always been in company operations, been in the industry uh, since I was 14 years old, and always been in company operations until about 19, until 1988. And what happened was uh, I was involved with A&W at the time, my first of two ventures uh, with the brand. And I was operating uh, company stores and I came to realize that A&W had an international division. And I expressed an interest to uh, the CEO at the time about potentially going overseas if there was ever a need. About six months later, that CEO came back to me and said, would you still be interested in working in Southeast Asia? And I said, 100%. So before you know it, I and my my wife and our four-year-old daughter uh, were traveling to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And of course, our business in international markets was all franchising at the time. And that was my first 
franchising experience was with multi-unit franchisees in Southeast Asia. So you and I began our careers in franchising in the same year. Mine was in 1988 as well. I, on the other side of the table, though, have always been on the franchise development and franchise relationships side of, of brands that I've been with over the course of years. But we've got to check that box off as we've been around this business about the same amount of time. Walk us up from there and tell us about some of the early assignments and what followed that career beginning in Southeast Asia. Where to from there? Well, yeah, I spent seven years in Southeast Asia developing uh, A&W restaurants through our partners and uh, primarily in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Philippines, Okinawa, Japan. We ventured into uh, China and a fair bit of the Middle East over uh, seven years that I lived in uh, Kuala Lumpur with my family and then moved back to the U.S. and uh, continued to oversee that business for about another three years. So from 1988 to about 1998, I was uh, overseeing the international division for A&W Restaurants and was able to get all the markets on a good growth path. And that led to, as part of the reason why we were acquired in 19, well, probably 97, I believe, uh, by a private equity group headed by uh, uh, the acquisition, headed by Sid Feltenstein, which we had talked earlier off the record, <laughs> back in the green room. There you go, back in the green room. So I then took over the A&W uh, business in the U.S. and uh, began uh, my U.S. experience in franchising and big difference in dealing with my first exposure and dealing with multi-unit operators and developers where you're really dealing with their organizations to help them, to assist them, to provide them the tools and the processes and systems they need for their organization to grow restaurants. I shifted over to the U.S. business. It was and still is today uh, for the for the most part, is a lot of single unit operators. And those relationships and those needs are just quite a bit different. Although the objective is the same, these are entrepreneurs that are in business for themselves, but not by themselves. But I found uh, in that second phase of my franchising experience is uh, that a lot more uh, direct involvement with the individual franchise partners in uh, operating, not only opening, but operating their businesses over time was just a very, very different experience. And it led me to develop uh, and, and I have to this day stronger than ever, just a tremendous amount of respect for franchisees, franchise partners, as we like to reference them in the, the work that they do every single day. And, you know, I've got a corporate checkbook behind me. So they don't make money. They don't eat. Right. Bit of an exaggeration, but I think you get the point. Sure. So A&W2 in the current day is franchisee owned, isn't it? That is correct. So that's really, really the introduction to the second part of my career with A&W. I left the brand about a year after the acquisition by uh, Yum Brands. Uh, along the way, we had acquired Long John Silvers. We were very successful in co-branding. That got Yum's attention. Yum acquired us and held the brand for about nine years. Fast forward nine years and Yum put the business up for sale. I was contacted by uh, the uh, chairman of our U.S. Franchise Association, who was a, was a friend of mine, had become a friend of mine. And then by our uh, largest international franchise partner uh, in Indonesia, whom I had also become friends with over the years. And they both contacted me and asked uh, if I could assist them in acquiring the business from Yum Brands. And we were 
in 2011, we were successful in doing so. So our two largest shareholders is our U.S. Franchise Association and our largest international franchise partner. And we did that acquisition in December of 2011. And now here we go, you know, you fast forward over the last, you know, 10 years and we, you know, we bought a bit of a distressed business from Yum. And over the last 10 years, we have managed to grow average unit volumes and same store sales in excess of 60%. We've had positive same store sales uh, every year for uh, the 10 years that we've uh, had the business. Put that in perspective, the previous nine Seven of the nine years were negative comps, and two of the nine years were flat to barely positive. So we've had a good run. And what that's done for us is it has improved the economics of the business dramatically. And that's what we set out to do in our first five, really going on six years, is we really looked at strengthening the foundation to make it a better economic model to go out in franchise more aggressively. And I'm happy to say we've accomplished that. The job is never done. We're still focused on growing uh, same-store sales along with now developing profitable new restaurants. And we've got today, uh, coming into 2022, coming in the first half of 2022, we've had, we have the largest, the most robust pipeline of new development that we've had since we've acquired the business. And I would suggest probably in the last 20 years. The company is privately held, am I correct? We are privately held, yes. Usually, companies the size of an A&W could be public, and I always have a conflict in my mind about publicly held companies that serve a fiduciary responsibility as a CEO would be to your shareholders, but your stakeholders, your franchisees, sometimes are at the other end of conversations that are shareholder benefit. And I've always had this problem with how do you serve two masters that way? How do you accomplish both needs? But when I look at a company like what I've learned about A&W and what it means to be franchisee-owned, you're almost on the opposite end of that spectrum, aren't you? There's nothing that goes on in this place that doesn't serve the right stakeholder of the franchisee. 100%. I mean, the the audience is the same, right? The, The stakeholder is the same. The shareholders and our franchise partners broadly are the same. Right. That's why we like to use the term franchise partners, because they truly are partners in in the brand. So it's interesting point that you make, Stan, in that there's nothing. Uh, first of all, our, our shareholders acquired this business to protect. The primary objective was to protect their long-term interest as franchisees. Okay. What does that mean? Well, in our brand, we're 102 years young, and uh, we've been doing business in Southeast Asia for 50 years. Uh, going on 60 years. And in our business, in our brand, long-term is generational. It's not quarterly. It's not next year. It's not a five-year, seven-year exit strategy. In fact, there is no exit strategy. So our partners, our franchise partners, and our shareholders acquired the business to protect their interest over the long term. And that, for me as a CEO and for my team, is our driving force. And there is no conflict there, right? (laughs) There is zero conflict there. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's dive a little deeper into the history of this iconic brand and talk more about this marathon that you're running as opposed to a sprint and where it's hitting post-COVID in a very, very changed world. Our conversation today is with Kevin Basner, CEO of A&W Restaurants, and we'll be right back. 
franchise today. We'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. We are all familiar with Vistage, YPO, and EO. Well, now comes Zorforum, a somewhat similar type of executive group. But this one comes with a twist. Zorforum groups are exclusively for franchisors. Imagine a peer group for sharing and networking on a platform built exclusively for franchise executives. Zorforum members are afforded unparalleled access to best practices and some of the brightest minds within the franchising world through regular meetings and a dedicated communications platform. In this post-COVID world, a franchise-specific mastermind or peer group is an endeavor worth making time for. Zorforum groups of 6 to 10 will bring leaders together that are in similar situations, but with exclusivity in terms of their competitive sets, so that each can openly help others benefit from their respective knowledge, perspective, and experience with no fear of competitive loss. Network, learn, strategize, and remain motivated along your journey. Join a peer group, not just any peer group. Join the only one designed for emerging franchisors. Join Zorforum. Learn more at Zorforum.com. That's www.Zorforum.com. And today's conversation with Kevin Bassner, CEO of A&W Restaurants, continues. And why don't we take a closer look behind the curtain, Kevin? This brand is iconic, whether you have eaten in a restaurant or not. I've been drinking A&W root beer and, and diet cream soda, I might add, for a long, long time. So I don't think there's too many people that don't know the brand. But tell us about the brand experience from the consumer's perspective and a little of the history that's brought it to its iconic stage today. I'd be happy to do so, Stan. One thing that people uh, really like to start this part of the conversation with information that the general public just doesn't have, and that is that in 1982, A&W Restaurants and A&W Can and Bottle came under two different ownership groups. So while many people, such as yourself, know us very well for Can and Bottle, that is a business that is today is controlled by Keurig Dr. Pepper. So for the last 40 years, while we have a very special relationship because we fly the same brand flag, if you may. We have exclusivity for restaurants. There is a difference, and a lot of people do recognize us across the country. Some regions stronger for can and bottle, more in the south, uh, more in the north, midwest. We are more known originally for restaurants. And that really uh, plays very much into our uh, development strategy. Well, people know the brand for its beverage, but the restaurant serve as a very different product in that we make our root beer fresh daily in all of our restaurants with cane sugar as opposed to high fructose corn syrup. So we make our beverage broadly the same recipe from 102 years ago. We make that fresh in stores uh, every day. And of course, in our dining room, we're also serving a fountain beverage, a draft a root beer beverage served in a frosted mug, which is really what consumers really know about the brand, whether it's can and bottle, whether it's at the restaurants, it's the beverage, right? We're the, we like to say we're the original craft beverage. So that really, that's where it really starts with the consumer, the mug for us, that frosted mug and getting that beverage served in a frosted mug in the restaurant is, is iconic and is, uh, it's what our consumers of in our restaurants, that's what they talk about. So over the the last 10 years, what we really, we put a, our stake in the ground 10 years ago when we acquired the business, that quality, uh, like our beverage, was going to be our long-term value proposition. We're not, 
promised our franchise partners uh, 10 years ago that we would, uh, under my leadership, nationally, the brand would not introduce a dollar menu, would not introduce a a price value message, that that was going to be left up to local store marketing and done on a local level. There is a need for it on a local level, but in our business, and our brand, it's different by market. So that's local. Broadly, from a strategy standpoint, starting with that, made fresh root beer and all of our products, it's really standing on quality as our long-term value proposition. That's what the consumer expects from us. What percentage of your business pre-COVID was on-premise eating in the dining room as compared to food through the window or going elsewhere for consumption? And how has that changed post-COVID? Yeah, great question. Pre-COVID, we were were close to 50-50 dine-in and drive-through, which was a bit below the industry average at the time in terms of drive-through. A lot of that is because of the mug, and that varied a lot by the type of location as well. But broadly, we were 50-50. We got, during COVID, we were 90 over percent drive-through, May, June, July, uh, you know, 2020 and beyond. Today, that pendulum has begun to swing back quite significantly, and we are seeing now upwards of 30%, 35% of our guests uh, frequenting the dining room. And a lot of that is because they want to come and get a mug. We just opened a new restaurant in uh, St. Louis, uh, Arnold, Missouri, the other day, Monday last week, uh, breaking all kinds of sales records. Talked to our franchise partner there yesterday, and I asked him that question, how much is dine-in versus drive-through? And he said he's running 48% dine-in business, 42% drive-through business, and the other 10% being uh, online ordering, delivery, or pickup, right? And I said, why why such a strong uh, dining room? And it was all about the mug. He's got a nice, uh, in addition to the dining room, he's got a nice big outdoor area. Of course, the weather this week in the St. Louis market has been gorgeous and uh, broken all kinds of sales records. And it's about the mug that people come into the dining room and and the fact that they can pour their own drafts from the self-serve mm-hmm. station. And we serve in draft root beer in a frosted mug. That's the key. What does the supply chain and the labor market look like for you? And how have you preserved your relationships and your franchisees, their relationships with frontline personnel in these challenging times for labor? Well, that's a uh, that's another great question. And uh, really much the same as uh, not only others in our industry, but in industry in general. I mean, the labor challenges uh, have been there. They really they were really getting heightened pre-COVID. And what we experienced over the last two going on three years has just exasperated that. And then, of course, the supply chain, there's no lack of headlines on what's going on with the supply chain. But let me start with the supply chain just for a moment. As a result of our previous ownership by Young Brands, we uh, continue to be part of the uh, Young Brands purchasing co-op. So on the supply chain side of it, we have the privilege, if you may, of being involved with the industries, one of the industry's largest purchasing co-ops. So that has helped tremendously when we're in the same conversation as the Yum Brands, whether it be for supply, whether it be for distribution. It certainly allows us to play above our fighting weight, if you may. So on the supply chain side, that doesn't mean we don't have any issues. We do. Everyone does. We just have the strength of the purchasing co-op behind us. On the labor side, which is also affecting supply chain, right? Distribution is the bigger issue today than manufacturing is. There are still 
some manufacturing issues, but it's become really more of distribution and labor in the distribution centers and drivers, et cetera. At the store level, there's no question we have had to pay more. You want people which are in tight supply, you have to pay more. And across our system, our wages in the last two years uh, for in-store people, from frontline workers to management, are up 12 to 15, and in some cases, 20% over the last couple of years. You have to be competitive. You're not hiring minimum wage people in the industry. That's gone. Those days are over. So how do you compensate for that technology? And for us, it's really getting more and more providing the consumer opportunities for self-ordering, whether it be in the store, online, uh, however the, the consumer access is, up, is to use that productivity to get more self-ordering. In the last two years, as painful as it's been, one of the outcomes has been as the consumer has advanced their use of technology dramatically. Some experts that I've heard anywhere from five to up to 10 years of technology use advancements in the last two years because of the environment that we've all had to live in. So we, uh, for our brand, is different for different brands. For our brand, we are looking at the opportunities for us to continue that as things hopefully throughout this year get back to a little bit more of normalcy. So higher wages, a little bit more productivity and using technology to assist with that productivity. And of course, both with supply chain inflation and labor, we had to take price. And the industry, as you know, our segment of the industry is taking has taken six to eight percent price increases in each of the last two years, and this will be the third year of the same. How do you fare in recession? You've been around long enough to live through a few of those, and it appears that we're heading into something that looks a little bit frightening. Yeah, yeah, the R word, the R word. Yes, we've uh, that question comes up a lot. We have certainly, uh, I'm not quite sure how many, but certainly over 102 years, at least uh, four or five, uh, half a dozen recessions. Obviously, the Great Depression, uh, where sugar became, uh, and and the and the war days, uh, World War II, and sugar shortages, et cetera. But we've been through a lot, and we believe, uh, as and always have, is that we just stick to to what we do best, and that's quality product served every day, hot food, hot cold food, cold, and we will survive. We will maintain our loyal customer base. And uh, and we will get in a recession, hopefully, that we don't get there, but there are a lot of ominous signs, as you pointed out. It's really going to continue to be about executing against that and enjoying what typically happens in our segment of the industry during a recession is people trading down, not out, but down. So they may trade down from us to the, to the most aggressive dollar offer, you know, uh, price value offer, but we get people trading down to us from family and casual dining during a recession. We generally hold our own. We won't necessarily experience the type of same-store sales growth as we've experienced the last couple of years over the last 10 years, but the last two years in particular, but we managed to hold our own and that's just through execution at the store level. Well, I think that the ability to trade down puts you in a safe space. You're not finding people dropping off a cliff because you were already at the bottom of the food chain, right? So people that you're losing are being replaced by others that are coming your way. Let's spend a few minutes in the time we've got left talking about the franchise opportunity. And you made mention earlier in our discussion that it looks a lot different U.S. domestic than it does overseas. Are you still looking for dramatic growth in both places or is it just domestic that we're looking at now for FranDev? Well, we're actually looking at both. We are developing uh, both uh, international 
nationally and uh, domestically. Uh, international, uh, in term, our business internationally, as opposed uh, relative to COVID, relative to two years of COVID, is lagging behind. It has lagged behind the U.S. in terms of the both the performance over the two years and the recovery. I'm happy to say that our international markets, all of our international markets, are in a very strong upswing from last year. Not quite to 2019 levels yet, but getting there very, very rapidly. Uh, and as a result, our development is accelerating there. One specific example, we have a partner in Malaysia that has just taken on an equity partner and committed to doubling uh, the growth from 65 uh, locations that we currently have in Malaysia to doubling that over the next five years on a net store basis. So with relocations and new development, the plan is to get upwards to 150 restaurants, which the market will hold for us. And now they're well capitalized to do. So we expect to grow 35, 40 new locations in our international business, uh, which is upwards near 10% growth for our, in terms of store count. Here domestically, we have a pipeline currently of 35 locations that are in the pipeline, maybe 34 because we opened one this week, with more coming into the pipeline literally every day. And so while we won't get all 35 of those open this year, we expect that between this year and next year, we will get those 35 open plus a handful more, six, maybe eight or 10 more. Still some headwinds on development, both sides of the pond, so to speak, here is really some of the same supply chain, labor, permitting, things are just taking longer. Equipment lead times, uh, while we've put 10 packages of equipment in inventory, you know, there are lead times on some equipment stand today of six, seven months. To get new equipment. And so that's still a headwind on new development. We're able to temper that somewhat. Again, largely given our relationship with one of the industry's largest purchasing co-ops, we're able to store equipment so that it doesn't slow down our new development. There's all kinds of other things slowing it down. So we feel uh, very good and uh, as strong as 10 years we've had since that we became an independent independent brand again. These next 10 years is really about now taking that foundation we've built and growing it aggressively. And you know, our target is to get to 15 locations this year, 20, 25, 30 locations per year that will change this business over the next 10 years fairly dramatically. And again, I just circle back to our ownership, our shareholder structure. No one's in a hurry. It's about growing profitable same-store sales and growing profitable new restaurants while we support our one-team initiatives, if you may, our, our one-team culture through intentional inclusion. And those are our three driving forces for our business. I've noted that A&W has been a very generous contributor to veteran-related charities. I'd be remiss if I didn't point that out. We're right on the tail end here of Memorial Day, but it looks like over a million dollars eight, 10 years that you guys have awarded to veteran-related charities. Do you do any consideration for veterans in your franchise opportunities, say, through VetFran? We do participate in VetFran, and we do provide uh, opportunities for veteran uh, franchise partners uh, as far as our relationship with veteran-related groups. 
uh, nonprofits, if you may. We have a long history with veterans. Back in 1919, uh, founder Roy Allen serving nickel root beer uh, on the streets of Lodi, California, which is where the first A&W was, serving veterans coming home from World War One. So we have a long history, and uh, currently we're working with the DAV, Disabled American Vets. We are uh, culminate our activities with them on August 6th, which is National Root Beer Float Day. This year we will be starting in early June, up uh, early July rather, 4th of July weekend, up through National Root Beer Float Day, August 6th, and accepting donations for DAV and all of our outlets across the U.S. And as a expression of our gratitude for that support of DAV, we will we are giving our consumers with a donation a free root beer float during that 30-day period, culminating in National Root Beer Float Day on August 6th. Awesome story, Kevin. Is there anything at this juncture that you can think of that you wish I'd have asked you and haven't? No, I think we pretty much hit on it all. Again, we're a very unique business. If I can summarize in that our shareholders, our principal shareholders, our franchise partners, we have a long-term view on the business. There is no exit strategy. This is a generational play. We are uh, tasked with uh, strengthening the brand in whatever way we can and make those investments literally every day. Nothing touches our restaurants that does not filter through our relationship with our franchise association. And uh, we've got three uh, driving factors, grow profitable same-store sales with emphasis on profitability, develop profitable new restaurants, again, with the emphasis on profitability, and as I mentioned earlier, supporting our one-team culture through being intentional about inclusion of everyone within our brand and in our stores. How about some contact information for those who may want to learn more? Well, the best way to learn more is to go to awrestaurants.com or awfranchising.com. Either one of those websites will take us to, in fact, we've just re-updated and, and redone our franchising website. Awful lot of information in there to help individuals learn everything and anything they would want to know about A&W to help with the decision as to whether they want to uh, potentially get involved with us as we begin to accelerate our growth. Kevin, this has been a real treat. I've enjoyed getting to know you here, and I look forward to continuing our conversation in the green room and then talking more down the road. Kevin Basner, CEO of A&W Restaurants, thanks for joining us on Franchise Today. It's been a pleasure, Stan. Well, that's a wrap for today. I'll be back next Wednesday to do it all again. Until then, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.